Hey everyone, welcome to Dear Warren Podcast, where we do backseat parenting, we we share stories, principles, parables, and lessons, and pass them down to my son Warren, but most importantly, we try to have fun and hope you do too. This episode features our good friend Kimberly Zapata. Kim is a wife, mother, writer, mental health advocate, and and was also a new metal fan back in the day. We get into this later. She has articles published by a variety of sites, including Huffington Post. She recently received an award for one of the voices of the year for Blog Her. She is also the founder of a nonprofit organization, uh, Greater Than Illness, and it aims to empower children and young adults struggling with mental illness. You can find out more about this organization and Kim by going to greaterthanillness.com. So please do yourself a favor. Check that site out. This episode, Kim and I discuss mental health, her writing uh, on depression, uh, misconceptions about uh, depression. We run a whole gamut of some serious topics. We also got into her marathon running, and uh, as well as the music we both grew up with and uh, the role of that during that time. There's a lot to cover. So please enjoy as we present to you, Kimberly Zapata. This is the Dear Warren Podcast. And we are on. Hi there, Kim. Hi. Uh, thank you finally for making it after uh, a bit of delay, a bit of cancellations here and there, snowstorms, um, and of course, injuries. Yes. <laughs> what happened? So uh, I'm a runner. I've been running for about eight years now. And I was out on a normal run, just doing my business. And I rolled off a, a, a curb mm. and sprained my ankle. Mm. And then I was told it would take about two weeks to heal. So I decided to wait exactly two weeks and start running again because I'm a very patient person. <laughs> and when I started running again, I the ankle just gave out. and It, it gave it, out? Yeah, it totally just gave out. It swelled to about the size of a grapefruit. And uh, I, I, I was in an extreme amount of discomfort. Um, and I went to urgent care and found out I sprained it again. Did, was there anything torn? Was there anything? I, so I, I never, I'm terrible with following up and I never ended up getting the MRI. <laughs> oh no. Um, it was, it was also really, my husband uh, had sciatica at the same time. Oh boy. So he had two bulging discs and two slip discs at the same time that my ankle was sprained. So did he, he also, was, did he get this from rolling his ankle too? No, oh, okay. no, no, no. But so he was going to physical therapy. Okay. So we had, we were trying to juggle the medical expenses budget. And so I never ended up, I just kind of nursed it back to health myself. So not only did you have to do that, I'm I'm sure you're also basking in a lot of the afterglow of uh, recent awards that you have been winning as well, too, which I also wanted to ask about. Uh, What what was that that you... Uh, It was the Voices of the Year Award. It was called the Spotlight Award, and it was from Blog Her. And it was uh, specifically for a piece I wrote regarding Chester Bennington and his suicide. Mm. And it was... Uh, apparently awarded uh, for being a a breakout piece of the year, and I was honored with sixteen other individuals, and it was quite an event. Congratulations! Thank for that. you. Um, is there anything you wanted to I- expand about with that uh, particular article that you wrote in reaction to that event? Because that obviously hit a lot of people. Uh, There's a lot of Lincoln Park fans out there, uh, and then even after their heyday, uh, he seemed to keep. Uh, his personal life a little bit out there as well too, where people right. uh, knew his 
uh, whether his his condition or just what he whatever he was thinking. Uh, how did you, uh, when you heard of the, that the time of his death? What what was going through your mind? Well, I'm a two time suicide survivor, mm. so. When I heard about Chester Bennington's story, first of all, I was also a big Linkin Park fan back in the day. I saw him in concert, and um, they were kind of the the music of my teenage years, yes. and as they were for many, many uh, in my generation. And uh, when I heard the news, I, I, I was mostly taken aback because I was like, that could have been me. Um, it was a very personal gut reaction that I... I I always say I'm a two-time suicide survivor, but I didn't survive because of anything I did. It was just sheer luck um, that I made it out and uh, as opposed to someone else. Um, so I, I was very hurt um, from a personal standpoint, uh, and it, it just resonated with me uh, in such a deep, deep level. And then I started seeing people on Facebook were posting, oh, what's wrong with these men? Because he was obviously not the first suicide of the year um, in, in the music industry. And I saw some very negative comments about what was wrong with these men and what's the problem with these men? Why can't they just get their shit together? Excuse me for the language, but basically why can't they get their stuff together? And it's, suicide doesn't work like that. And so I, I felt this knee-jerk reaction that I had to say something about what suicide really looks like. So I wrote this this very emotional, um, personal piece out of a, out of a gut reaction, and and I published it, and then it got picked up by uh, Scary Mommy, then it got picked up by Babel. I think Huffington Post ran it, and next thing I know, it was just out there, um, getting quite a lot of traction, and it 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 felt good to say something that because suicide isn't. It, people don't commit suicide because they 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 have they don't have things or it's not suicide can strike anyone and it's not something that affects any particular race or religion or class of people no matter how much money you have or how many good things you have going on in your life it can affect so many people it, it's it and and so I lost my train of thought. It's quite all right. There's a, there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. Because as you said, it was a gut reaction. So you actually uh, had a lot to immediately kind of release in uh, probably when you initially wrote that. Yes. Um, when you were reading uh, some of those comments that obviously everyone on, on the internet is an, is an expert, right? Right. Every, suddenly everyone is a shrink. Uh, what are uh, what were some of the like common uh, preconceptions that people have, especially that kind of their like an initial knee-jerk reaction they had that you were just mm, that's many of them were like well chester bennington he had so much he he was a, a lead singer he had this great life that everyone would kind of see uh, from the outside they're like he had a family he, he was a a high-end performer he had fans he had money he had everything that you should have or that that society tells you you want to have and convention tells you that you want to have and their reaction was like, well, then if he had everything, why did he do it? And many people were also reacting to the fact that they, a selfish, he was so selfish to kill himself. And, mm. and that was a very common reaction. And, and, and suicide does seem very selfish from the outside, but for the most part, someone who's been, and I can speak from myself, when you're suicidal, you're thinking that your act is not selfish. You're trying to, the last thing you've gone and exhausted so many feelings at that point. 
you the, what's kept you hanging on to that point has been family and friends and it's not a selfish act you feel genuinely like you'd be helping the people in your life that they'd be better off without you Ooh. and that that's a and and that's a very real feeling mm-hmm. that that comes along with it and so it was very heartbreaking to see that people just and i understand where it comes from it's 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 hard to really grasp what suicide feels like unless you've been there or what depression or mental illness feel like unless you've been there. Um, so it's, it's, it, I understand where people are coming from, but it was very hard and heartbreaking to see people talk about it. So flippantly. Yes, exactly. Mm. You did mention, uh, as, uh, depression and mental health. Is that part of the pathway that is, is, is it kind of like levels where suicide is at the top and it leads into it or, or is it all kind of blended together? I mean, it certainly can. Um, for me, I have uh, depression and anxiety. I was actually recently re-diagnosed. I have bipolar depression, um, which has changed my medica- medication um, for the better because I've been, I was diagnosed with depression when I was 15 years old. So I've been dealing with mental illness for the last almost 20 years. And I've never really found a a medication that's worked and that's because I wasn't diagnosed correctly. So it makes a lot of sense now that the reason I was finding so much resistance with medication was I wasn't being treated properly. Um, but so it certainly can, uh, result in suicidal thoughts and suicidal ideations and suicidal acts. Um, but there's, there's plenty of people who also commit suicide or attempt suicide, um, who, who have no mental illness, Mm. who are maybe having a financial struggle, one of the largest groups of people afflicted by men, uh, by suicide, excuse me, is actually um, men in their forties, forties and fifties. Many people think teenagers would probably be the yeah. most affected generation, but it's actually men in their forties and fifties, and a lot of that is change of life stuff. Um, of course, mental illness and mental illness is more historically speaking, not historically speaking, but in general, it's less treated in men. Um, than it is in women. And I don't know what the reason for that is. I don't know if it's more of a stoicness and uh, the the societal standpoint of men need to take charge and, and buck up and not have feelings. So or, you think they just push it? Uh, well, as far as uh, them just not reporting it or reaching out for someone to help? Yeah, that, I, mm? I think it's just they're not reaching mm. out for the help. that, And, and I don't know why specifically it is, um, especially as a woman. I, I can't tell you why that affects more men than it does women, but it's def- or is less treated in men than it is in women. But Probably because of everyone's flippant responses that come out on true. Facebook. True. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it I'm doesn't help. I'm not saying anything. <laughs> it's true. It doesn't help. It doesn't help. Um. What do you think that is as far as when people just would come out with something that you can tell that they probably thought about it for less than 10 seconds and then just deciding to throw something out there, especially when it comes to things such as mental health or depression? I think it's a a part of our culture with the internet in general. I just think people on the internet will think a lot less before they speak and put something out there. Um, it's more instantaneous and I think they think it carries less weight than because mm. most things you see on the internet, you, you wouldn't say that to someone's face or I, I can't even tell you how many things I've had said about me as a writer mm. online. Oh um, geez. Yes. I have had, um, the, the, I, the I, trolls I, coming out from every corner. It, they and have, and crazy. on mental health articles too, which I, I mm-hmm. is predominantly what I write these days is mental health. And I've had 
Um, people say that my daughter should be taken away from me. Um, I've had um, some less than stellar comments about men who believe they could um, treat my mental illness with sexual favors because, yeah, <laughs> to put it politely, um, because I'm clearly not. Guys, I've heard of pickup lines, but that one's just <laughs> going way too. Anyway. Yeah, I, I've, I've had people flat out tell me to kill myself online. Uh. And these are on what I would think would be benign articles. So I think people are just more flippant at, to go back to that online. To, and to, to be fair, just to sidetrack, uh, uh, as far as, quote, kill yourself, that's the second most uh, common thing I hear when I'm playing Halo online. So I, I, I believe that. that. And uh, uh, the first one is they are very, they have very intimate knowledge about my mother for some reason. Of course they it, do. They, yeah. just, they really know her. And I, for some reason, they know her a lot better than I do. Very intimately, too. <laughs> I bet too. they do. I'm, I'm sorry. We're uh, going back to that. But yeah, so I think <clears throat> uh, people are just a little bit more cavalier online. And it, they think that somehow it carries less weight when they say things online. But I, I don't think that's necessarily true. Do you think it's something when they th just flippantly throw out mental health or depression where they feel it's something that that person has it, I don't, I'm never going to get to that place. So that's why I'm going to label that person as, oh, it's, they couldn't help themselves. I can help myself. So since I can help myself, uh, there's no way I can be that person. Yeah. I think it's a, a genuine, um, misunderstanding too. Mm. And like, like I said earlier, it's kind of hard to understand mental illness unless you've experienced it. So I think, I don't necessarily think it's always malicious, um, but I do think the conversation too, it, it's common around, for example, when there's a, a mass shooting or mm. some kind of mm -hmm. major incident, the first thing, it's not even just people online is throwing around terms of mental illness. The media covers it that way. They tend to question, did this individual have a mental illness? Were they schizophrenic? Were they bipolar? Some source says this without really sourcing it out. And that's keeping a conversation that's stigmatizing going on as opposed to a really open conversation um, and, a, and a productive conversation. For media to immediately jump to these things, it makes the stigma okay. What do you think uh, are some initial steps uh, either media or people have to take to reach uh, something productive as far as a conversation? Well, I think there's some best practices the media should ge generally be following. Um, hype we should never be um, labeling or having a hypothetical label about someone's diagnosis. Only a doctor can give a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And by having all of these articles by valid media sources, and then of course there's plenty of media, everyone's a news writer these days. Um, and yeah. so, so having so many, um, so many people just coming out and talking about or hypothetical, hypothesizing a diagnosis. It, no one should be diagnosing anyone unless it's a doctor. If a doctor comes out and says this person had XYZ, then we can cover it and we can maybe cover it from a productive angle and talk about facts about the mental illness and not just this, well, the shooter had depression or the shooter was schizophrenic. Um, using words like crazy and insane in the same articles that talk about mental illness, that's stigmatizing. Whether whether or not it's intentional, it might not even be in the same sentence. But then having that all in the same conversation promotes this stigma. It perpetuates it. And it just starts leading down another track that just starts getting unproductive. Right. And why then you, where why, people are not talking about it. Why do you, why do you think they go the unproductive route? 
I think I think uh, it comes down to a, a misunderstanding, and mm. people don't, and people are afraid of what they don't know. Mm. Naturally, uh, it's a just a natural reaction that most people have when you when something's unknown. So if you're afraid of it, then we're not going to talk about it in a productive way. We're going to talk about it in a fear-based reaction. Was this the catalyst uh, for you to start reaching out and writing a lot about it to really uh, sit down, bear down, and express all of this? Yeah, so yes, but my initial writing about mental health, uh, I I kind of stepped into the mental health writing realm by accident. Um, I say I'm an accidental blogger or an accidental advocate. And the reason for that is when I started writing about mental health, I was diagnosed, like I said earlier, when I was 15, but I didn't start writing about it until I was 29, um, until I had a really bad bout of postpartum depression with my daughter. And there was a a call for a a publication was coming out, and it was dealing with postpartum depression, and they were looking for articles. And I went to school for English. I'm an English major. And I was like, wow, if there's ever been a topic I should write about, this is it. So the deadline was in about two weeks. So I feverishly sat down and started writing about postpartum depression. It was the first time I wrote about it. So 2,500 words later, I basically vomited onto the page and, and I turned it in. It did not get accepted. And then I got the piece back and I looked at it. And I was like, oh, that really wasn't good. I just kind of threw everything out there. So I revised it and I sent it out to Scary Mommy, which is a parenting website. And within 48 hours, I had an acceptance of that piece. And I didn't realize at the time what a big entity scary mommy was. I was still a new mom and I followed them, but I didn't realize they were like the end all of parenting sites. Um, it's one that many other writers like expire to be published on. Hmm. Uh, so I sent it out there, got accepted. And in the meantime, I started a blog and I just sent the blog out to a few friends. I can count the number of friends that knew about it on a hand. Um, and I published about two pieces and I wrote candidly about my mental illness and my struggles with postpartum depression. And then the third piece I published, instead of publishing it to this private little group, I published it publicly and it went right onto my Facebook page because my, my WordPress fed into Facebook. And next thing I know, within about five minutes, I realized, oh my God, like this is out there for the world to see. Now everyone knows I have a mental illness. And and so I just debated, no one had commented on it or liked it back. This is back in the day before you had 400 emotions that you could express on Facebook. Um, so I decided, okay, what do I do? Do I delete it? Do I delete the blog? Do I, do I just pretend this never happened or do I leave it up? And in that moment, I made the decision that I was going to leave it out there because someone had already read it. Five minutes on the internet is basically an eternity. So someone I knew had read it. They just hadn't said anything about it. And I decided I could either let people talk about this behind my back Mm. because they had read it and they were probably going to talk about it, or I could direct the conversation. And so I decided to leave it up there. And then once that piece was up and the cat was out of the bag and it ran on Scary Mommy, the other article, and I just kind of snowballed from there and I really became advocacy became my my number one mission like is that the role that you uh still aspire to just uh continue at ad, ad, sorry for jumbling my words mm-hmm. advocacy um I recall you uh mentioned earlier how uh as far as dealing with personally for yourself, for your, your mental health, there was uh, going uh, a medical route for it, so you could deal with it uh, medically. Are there any other uh, steps or other processes or uh, anything else that 
um, and I'm sure it's probably covered in your blog, uh, that you have been taking as far as either handling slash coping. Sure. Slash- yeah. Um, running is a major outlet for me. I've always found running very cathartic. Um, writing is very cathartic. Mm. Um, yes, I do take medication. I also, uh, yoga is a practice, something I really enjoy practicing, and at times I meditate, sometimes with anxiety, sometimes meditation can be a little anxiety inducing in and of itself. Um, but I definitely try to manage my health in other aspects too. And, and I find a, a lot of friends I know do manage, uh, they successfully manage using like physical health or mm-hmm. dietary changes. Um, some, some people that I know, uh, they find meditation is all they need to deal with their anxiety. But for me, it's a little bit of a combination. And this is an ongoing thing, right? If you can help me understand it, because I'm sure, sure you get the the trolls coming out from all corners of, oh, just eat right. Oh, and, yes. And uh, Pray. Find, find a job that you really like. Right. Uh, and Find and God. Smoke, because smoke, apparently smoke I'm a not. Little, yeah, smoke a little something as well, too. Find this religion, right. whoever it is. Yes. And then you're all set. Oh, why, thank you. That's yes. all I needed to do? Yes, I had no idea it was so easy. <laughs> So is it is it something that's quote solved or is it just it's you handle it every single day or I think it depends on the illness. Um, okay. Some people will have a set period of depression or a set period and they will move on from it and it will never affect them again. Mm. And for me, mine is it's been there through my whole life. Um, some days are better than others. Some days I definitely need to be a little bit more proactive in how I handle it uh, because some days getting out of bed can be a struggle some days. Um, but it's definitely, uh, I've got a solid series of coping techniques and and I've got very supportive family. Mm. Uh, sometimes though, I will uh, admittedly, I'm not always the best at admitting my feelings. Like when I'm, I'm, I'm a very big proponent, like for my daughter, I I tell her all the time, you know, to talk about her feelings and it's okay to feel whatever she feels. Uh, I feel like getting in touch with her feelings now is very important. Um, but I'm not always the best at getting in touch with my feelings or sharing them, uh, even with my husband. And, and I'm trying (laughs) that that's a work in progress, but because when I'm in the midst of, for example, if I'm in the midst of a depressive episode, I don't, I kind of shut everyone out Mm. and I kind of default to I'm fine because it's easier to say I'm fine than to say, I feel really crappy today, but I don't know why, Mm. because that's really a hard thing. Sometimes that's what it is. You just can't explain why you feel that way. So the, so it's Mm. easier to default to, oh, oh, I'm just fine. I guess that probably starts to uh, lead to the misunderstanding that you were talking about for people who misunderstand uh, depression or mental illness. They Do you feel they go from the mindset of, you feel bad, there must be like a reason that links to it, like one to one. Absolutely, then, there's got to be some correlation. They're, they, they feel like there has to be a cause. Well, why do you feel bad? Um, Stop doing that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, whatever, you know, what, and there isn't a cause for mental illness. And that's what makes it so confusing and so misunderstanding or so misunderstood. It's, it's very, it's very difficult to put a finger on something because there isn't anything to put your finger on. Are there any key phrases that, uh, when these misunderstandings do come and you start receiving these comments or people just say these flippant ideas, are there, are there any key phrases that they say that are, that just make you roll your eyes or just basically make you sigh and go, you're really not helping the situation when you use these terms? 
And at the same time, it's kind of like, instead of using those terms, you could use, uh, this is what it is. I know you kind of have an idea of what they're trying to say. Well, I think the, some of the hardest stuff is just because when, when I say, oh, I'm depressed today, Mm -hmm. the first reaction is why? Mm. And that it, if you're dealing with depression, sometimes people say they're depressed when they really just mean sad. And that's, Ah, and that's a common problem too. Yes. Because Depression isn't sadness. I, sadness can be a symptom of depression, but it is sadness is a feeling, whereas depression is an illness. Um, so, it, I think that's that in and of itself is part of the problem. Is because so many people sometimes say, "Oh, I'm depressed today," but they really just mean sad. So there's a a a difficult, I guess dichotomy um between the 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 words in and of themselves does it it probably tug at you as someone who is actually handling depression when a a little bit like i i I mean i understand why people say it and so i try and i i definitely get where people are coming from but but in those cases when someone says oh i'm depressed today and someone says why and they can be like oh well this happened and this happened because there is a cause because they're Uh really expressing sadness or something else um Whereas the the gut reaction of why it's a really hard thing because there isn't an answer like I said and so when when someone says why you just I kind of want to shake them sometimes I'm like I don't know why if I knew why I wouldn't be depressed like, why would I say it like, why would I ask this question right if I if I knew why I was depressed I clearly wouldn't be here uh, I'd be so that's a, that's a frustrating reaction I mm. but I it's a natural reaction yeah nonetheless. Um, so it, it's it's constantly a struggle for me between understanding, like I'm I'm a very uh, empathic person, so I try and understand where other people are coming from too. So I, whereas I want to shake them, I'm also trying to educate at the same time. So it's really difficult. <laughs> and then what you can probably also tell, uh, since you're an, an empathetic person, that when they do uh, would ask a question about you, sometimes it is out of uh, your best interest or they really do oh, want to try to help. And then obviously there's a lot of other comments where it's, uh, meant for, to hurt you. Right. Right. What do you think that end game is? What do you think their particular end game is? The for people who want to hurt who, or, who, or who just hurt, making or, malicious comments yeah, for the sake what, of what, making what you, malicious what comments. What do you think? Like, that's a good question. Um, I don't like why. Yeah. I, 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 I wish I had the answer to that. Uh-huh. I think some people, um, especially if we go back to the, the space of the internet, I think some people just want to, they want to watch the world burn. Oh, geez. No, no, no. That's actually a very good, yeah. I think you just answered it right there. There's some people who just rather, I want to see that disaster get even like right. crazier. I, I just want to see this whole thing like go down. Right. Oh, man. And then to direct that to a person, geez. Come on, guys, you got to, or whoever uh, out there on trolls on the internet that decide to just randomly throw out knives like that. There are people on Jeez. the other side of the keyboard. Who, yeah. When you throw those things out, there are, there are writers behind those articles. There are people, there are real people with real lives on the other side of those words. I think that's forgotten, though, when you see an article. I, I, even trolls. I'm going to give the trolls a little bit of credit because I think even they forget there's somebody on the other side. There's an actual real tangible person mm-hmm. with real feelings and maybe a family. Yes. And there, you know, my mother's read some of these comments and mm-hmm. I told my mom early on to stop reading the comments because I, I that's oh. how I handle it. I don't read the comments unless it's particularly on like my little Facebook page, my mm-hmm. little space of the internet, or when I write for mental health platforms specifically, um, 
when I write for any other site, if it's just a general parenting site or a general site like Washington Post or the Huffington Post, I don't read the comments because that's where that's where they get the nastiest. Is But I feel it's very important, though, that... Uh, ironically, though, I feel it's really important that we talk about mental health in the spaces that aren't for mental health. Spaces like parenting websites or general publications because I think that's where we can impact the most change. Um, if I, it's great. I love writing for, for example, the mighty is a, an illness based website. So they deal with mental illness, chronic illness. I love writing for them and I love their audience. Um, it's, it's one of my favorite platforms to write for, but when I'm writing for them, it's mostly, I'm talking to people who can relate Mm -hmm. when I write for another site, it's someone who doesn't understand mental illness and that's where we can really shape the conversation. So I feel it's really important to write for other platforms and to talk to the people on the other side that don't understand it, even if it is that frustrating conversation, because the only way we can change the stigma is by talking about it. And the more we talk about it, the less it's stigmatized. And then the more comfortable someone who maybe is younger and struggling with mental illness, they might say, oh, well, I, that's how I feel. And so they might get comfortable talking about it. And so we, they, they can start a conversation younger. And when I was, when I was 15 and diagnosed, I mean it was a big family secret. Like we didn't talk about it. And Mm -hmm. this is, this is only going back 20 years, but it was, you didn't talk about mental illness and it was stigmatizing to have, it still is, but the, it was this whole, Oh, well hush, hush. My mom knew and my brother knew, and that was it. And Jason, my husband knew, um, when we started dating, he, he knew me back in high school. And, uh, so he knew, but other than that, I did not talk about it. Like I said, until I was 29. Do you think it's uh, because of the linking of the, the term mental illness to just atrocities such as those uh, mass shooters or just other types of atrocities that have happened in our past where the the bar is just kind of like so low where to get associated with it and then you get associated with like the worst of the worst? Yeah, uh-huh. I think that has a lot to do with it. I think... Um, not so glorious portrayals of mental illness in film and t- television. Um, there's some programs that have done a great job of portraying mental illness. Like what? Um, I hear, I, now here's the thing. I haven't seen it because I, oh, okay. um, but I hear 13 reasons why was a mm. fan tra- fantastic. Okay. Um, show. That's out on Netflix. It's right? on Netflix. Yeah. And I hear it did a really great job of portraying suicide. I hear it was graphic though, which is why mm. I chose not to watch it because mm-hmm. I am a suicide survivor. So I decided to stay away from that. Um, but I do hear it did a really great job of having a conversation. Um, but then there's plenty of media out there that have just made, you know, you, you go to the, the, asylum or the, uh, to use the words, the insane hospital. And Mm. they portray the, the, the crazy girl screaming in the corner or like, you know, and I think that's, and I'm not saying there are not people who struggle with mental health concerns that, that don't have those experiences, but most people that are struggling with the mental illness do not look like they do in the media. And that, that perpetuates that fear that I was talking about earlier, because if, if everyone thinks, oh, well, oh my God, that person is talking to themselves and not that there's anything wrong with someone talking to themselves, but it, you know, that they, they portray this, this violent image of mental illness. They portray this, um, that everyone with a mental illness is delusional or out of control. Yes. They can't help it. Right. And, and, and by portraying it that way, I think it, it definitely, Mm. 
you know, it, it's it's a, a, a lot of dynamics, I think, and a lot of pieces that are affecting. Were there any uh, mini wins that you had, uh, such as 15 minutes ago, when we were talking about how uh, you would talk to a person, they would say, I am depressed, when they really meant that they wanted to say that, well, maybe the better terminology there is sad, rather than linking to, linking to that word. Uh, were there any other cases where you were able to explain something either through talking or through your blog and someone has said, oh, I never really saw it that way? Yeah, um, I, I've actually gotten, I've, I've written a few articles. Unfortunately, we've had so many mass shootings and I've written a few articles at why we shouldn't, the, the base reaction shouldn't be like, that person has a mental illness um, mm. or that person's crazy. And I've written uh, for a couple different sites about that. And I have had several people say, I never thought of it that way. Or um, in, in a particular case, uh, I was writing a, a Facebook status or s- something or other about, about how I felt with depression and how it affected me. And I've had some people come to me and say, I don't, underst- I don't have a mental illness, but thank you for shining a light on that because I never thought that X, Y, Z, you know, mm. and, and it, those little wins are definitely they're they're why I keep doing it every day, uh, you know the trolls trolls be damned. But uh, I I mean that's you're why you're not going to change their minds. Anymore. No, they, no, but they have their mindset. No, that they have a they have a very specific agenda. Uh, but yeah, no, I that's why I keep doing what I do because if mm. I change one person's mind who doesn't have a mental illness, or if I help someone understand it, if I help someone feel like they're less alone and who's struggling, that's great. That's, but if I help someone who doesn't have any idea what perhaps bipolar disorder looks like, and oh. then they're like, Oh, there's a, there, you know, one of the misconceptions of bipolar disorder is that they're violent and I am not a violent person. And so if I help somebody understand that this is not the stereotype out there is not what it looks like. Yeah. And most people, um, there's a statistic about gun violence and mental illness. And statistically, someone with mental illness is more likely to turn a weapon on themselves than they are on someone else. Yeah. I think the, I want to say it's something like 5% of, of those with mental illness will actually act out violently on others. It's, it's a statistically that it's very small and, and so, yeah. So if I can impact that change for one person and make them understand something whatever little victory it is every little victory is worth it well when you did say that you were coping with uh anxiety with uh, mental illness with depression through physical means meditation and running not only have you uh started just with running you took it up a notch you took it up to uh pretty much long distance running marathon running right how did that start and how did that help you? Sure. Um, so about eight years ago, I had a girlfriend, I was graduating, uh, second degree at college and I had a girlfriend offer to register me for Tough Mudder for a graduation present. It was the first, (laughs) I think it was the first or the second year they had done Tough Mudder. It was very new. There wasn't Mm -hmm. quite a lot of stuff out there like it. And so she was like, I'll register us and we'll do it. And I was like, okay, that sounds cool. Now, at the time, I didn't run at all. I, had any, I couldn't even run a mile. And so I see this Tough Mudder event, and it's about 
15 to 18 obstacles and anywhere from a nine mile run to an 11 mile run. And I was like, I've got to get into shape. So <laughs> I started uh, going to the gym. I was doing a boot camp class. I was lifting, you know, anything I could to get ready for the physical obstacles. And then I would go running. And I remember the first time I went running outside and I lived about maybe a mile from the train station. And I tried to run to the train station. I couldn't make it to the train station. And so I was like, man, I really got to train. And then next, next day, maybe I made it an extra block or two. And, and before long I was running, uh, I was running, you know, eight, nine miles at a time. Nice. And I really, I really liked running the, so I did the Tough Mudder and it was awesome. We, I think we had an 11 mile course that day and it, it was a great time and it was a, a challenge and the obstacles were fun, um, but I really found myself, the running aspect, I w- it, it just, something about it hooked me, and I felt it was very um, cathartic, uh, it was very relaxing, which is a very weird way to describe running, I know, um, but it felt like me time, and I felt like I was really focused and centered on myself, and so I decided after I did that Tough mutter that I wanted to take that up and do a half marathon, and a half marathon is 13.1 miles. Mm. So I looked Still in- no joke, people. Please. <laughs> Anything over 200 meters is long distance to me. So, <laughs> so I looked into races in Philadelphia and I mm-hmm. registered for one maybe six months later and uh, trained for it and did the first race. I wasn't sure how it was going to go because at least Tough Mudder, there was obstacles, you know. So it was 11 miles, but you're maybe running at most a mile at a time and then you're doing some kind of obstacle uh, challenge, whatever whatever have you. Uh, so I wasn't sure how the race would go and it went amazingly well. I finished in about two hours and 25 minutes or something like that, I still remember. And I was really, I, I was hooked at that point. Um, so then I found another race and I registered for another race and I kept doing half marathons for a long time. Had my daughter, I, I, when I was pregnant, I ran until I was 38 weeks pregnant, um, with my doctor's advice. Uh, yes. yes. And, uh, so I ran until I was 38 weeks pregnant. And then once I got the clearance to run again, I started running again and registered. I think my first race after she was born was a 10 K and then I did a half marathon. And then I really knew I wanted to do a marathon, um, so I tried to get into the New York marathon for three years and it's a lottery based system and I did not get in it's you, they've got tens of thousands of people who apply every year to get in. Uh, so I tried to get in and I told my husband, I said, if I don't get into the New York marathon, I want to go to in Disney. Uh, they do what's called run Disney and they have Disney races. Um, I'm a big Disney fan. <laughs> I, I, would, I was born and raised in Florida. So, oh. di- yeah, Disney World was like my backyard. We went there for <laughs> birthday parties, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so, so I decided I was going to do this Disney race. And it wasn't just the Disney Marathon. It was called the Dopey Challenge. And what the Dopey Challenge is, it's four days of running. You run a 5K, a 10K, a half marathon, and then a marathon. Dopey doesn't mess around. No. Jesus. Go on. <laughs> so it's uh, 48.6 miles in four days. And uh, I decided if I was going to do a marathon, I was going to do that as my first marathon. <laughs> oh, my God. I don't do you know. have to go back down to like marathon, half marathon? And <laughs> no, like, no. Like a, like <laughs> no. a ladder. <laughs> no. Oh, um, so I did not Jeez. get into the New York marathon. So okay. I registered for the Dopey Challenge. 
and I trained for about six months and consecutive runs and I had a knee injury in there, but I kept going. Yeah. Um, and it, it was in it. I, I am so glad I did it. I don't think I'd ever do it that way again. I it was would, a, it was a race a day, right? Yes, like one it, race, a different yes, event. Oh, yeah. My so uh, God. it started on a Thursday. So Thursday I ran three point one miles. Friday I ran six point two miles. Saturday it was thirteen point one miles, and then Sunday was twenty six point two. And I did this voluntarily. <laughs> I'm still Kim can attest to it. I got a bewildered look on my face right now. Jeez. <laughs> What was the total again? 48.6. But uh, just, what is the body's recovery time each day? Don't you need like a a year to recover? (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, not quite a year, but so normally when I would do a half marathon, uh, yeah, I I usually take a day or two off at least at minimum to give your body recovery time. So this was, this was a whole different kind of training because I did not have the recovery time and I had to prepare my body to not have that recovery time. Um, yeah. And what the, it's funny. I was, I trained pretty, I, I, I felt I trained very solidly and I was ready to go. Um, what I didn't prepare for was it was also my daughter's first trip to Disney world. So I didn't, <laughs> I didn't prepare for the fact that I'd also be walking about five miles a day. Oh, geez. Um, so that was, that, that definitely threw me through a loop. Um, mm. cause I was not prepared for that. Um, but yeah, I, I, it was, it, the recovery time really isn't there when you do in a race like that. Did you get any coaching, uh, or any instructors or this was just all self-taught? No, I, I mean, D- uh, run Disney does have a training program. So I was using their training program. Oh, I meant like from the beginning when you started running no, itself. No, mm. no, I just fell in, like I said, I fell into running Okay. All because of that. And no, I never had a coach in high school. I would not run at all. <laughs> like I was always trying to get out of the runs. Um, but no. So yeah, it was all self-taught. So is there uh, two questions uh, I'll ask in chronological order first. <laughs> when after you had uh, uh, your your daughter yes, and you had to get cleared uh, again to go running again, was there any type of physical therapy or anything you had to do in order to rebuild anything prior to being able to run uh, again after pregnancy? No, there was no physical therapy. I had to ease back into it. Like I couldn't jump right back into okay. half marathon length, um, but I, I, there was no therapy or anything like that. And then the second question, are you going to be upping beyond a marathon and doing a, what is that? Ultra marathons. Ultra marathons. Right? What, what's the distance on those? It depends. Um, they're, they're, they vary. I think the the shortest ultra marathon is, that I know of is something like 30 or 35 miles Mm -hmm. and I've seen ultra marathons that go up to I want to say they're called 100 k's so um yeah I'm I've heard of the Moab what is the Moab uh mother of all something where it's like 200 plus miles oh my gosh and yeah, I, well, I, I remember, will not be doing that. <laughs> I remember listening to a, to a podcast with uh, one of the uh, women who finished it, and she said during the last 10 miles of it, uh, she basically, her vision, all she could see, like everything was black, and then in her peripheral down by her feet, she could see her feet, but everything out, like her body just, everything just shut down, oh and gosh. she ran the last bit only being able to see, like, in her bottom peripheral, her feet. Oh that, my which goodness! Is, that, which is nuts. Yeah, that's, you, ready, you ready for this, Kim? Come on! <laughs> I would love to do an ultra marathon, assuming my ankle heals up pretty quickly. Mm. I would love to do an ultra marathon at some point, but I'm not. I don't think I'm going to be looking at anything like that. I, I my girlfriend did a 35 mile, so I, I think that would be something I'd love to try. I mean, it's only nine more miles, right? <laughs> What's nine more miles? <laughs> 
Um, and you said that you rolled your ankle. You also, you've also had knee injuries as yes. well, too. Was yeah. there any uh, tearing or any? No, no. That was that was actually that was pure blunt force. I Ooh. I fell. Um, it was supposed to be my first twenty mile training run. I up until that point I hadn't done twenty miles, so I was okay. very excited to do my first twenty mile run, and I felt really good going out. And then I hit a pothole and oh. fell straight forward and uh, bashed my knee into the concrete. <laughs> And then I ran another 14 miles. What happened to the knee at that point? Or oh, was just... It was swollen and bloody and mm. it, was a, it was a mess. So I had to take a few weeks off during that training period. You just reminded me of my dad and whenever I would injure my knee. I remember the, like one of the first few times I blew it out in jiu-jitsu or whatever it was. He would always... He would say, why do you injure your knees? Why can't you hurt your arm, you know, <laughs> get a sling or something? Because then you got to walk around in crutches all day. And I'm like, well, you know, Dad, if, if I could select what right. I could injure, yeah, I'll keep that in mind for next time. <laughs> you know? Exactly. But, uh, man, it's a it's a bummer having a, uh, well, what's the term they like to use? A bad wheel, whether it be an ankle or yes. a knee. It's because it just hinders everywhere. Right. Around. How was it the like the past five weeks? Or just slowly you got so everything back. It's, if nothing else, it's been driving me absolutely up the wall oh, because geez, I'm very that, stir crazy. Like too. I'm so used to that running. Too. Yes. Yeah. So it's been um, a challenge to say the least. I went on my first run yesterday. Okay. Um, and that felt fabulous. Uh, I'm, I'm still experiencing tightness and, you know, it's it, my ankle is not where it needs to be yet. But it was nice just to get out and go running again because it's just so ingrained and I, I you know generally I run four or five times a week so to not be able to do any of that I couldn't do any yoga like with the ankle injury so I was very very stir crazy you get a lot of video ga video game time in yes no y you would think I actually did a lot of work <laughs> oh okay <laughs> uh. I would also think uh, the the husband also probably hogs all the systems anyway. So he, he takes the the switch to work. So oh yeah, I know. How dare you? I know. You know that's supposed to be a family entertainment system. I know. That's that's what a, the original <laughs> Nintendo was. It was the NES Nintendo Entertainment System. And it this was. is not your personal. Um, that's why they have the Game Boy. <laughs> all right. Is Game Boy still a thing? Oh, I don't know. I well, don't know either. I, I, th I think with the Nintendo Switch, I just probably blows not. Yeah, that, blows that away. The, the Game I Boy is a is a is a personal uh, weapon. That's what it I is. still remember my first Game Boy. That was black and white. They were amazing. It was so cool. They were. They ran on four AA batteries. They I lasted know. forever. You could take them to school, and it was well, great. You know, you're not supposed to, but yeah, I know. Well. <laughs> is there anything um, uh, ongoing with that as far as any gaming? You get into that, or is it uh, not as much? No, I we do. It's 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 funny. Um, I'm I'm terrible. I have a, a I'm a workaholic, so mm. I tend to like you know when my daughter goes to bed instead of going and playing video games, I tend to go say, "Oh, I'm gonna go work for a while." Ooh. I know I'm terrible. <laughs> uh, I guess it's a a, a a downside, a benefit, and a downside to yes. being your own boss. Uh, yeah. Because I, I'm a freelance writer, and mm -hmm. so I kind constantly feel that need to keep working and producing. Um, but I do, I, I do uh, play. My husband and I play a lot of uh, games together um, when we do get to play. Love <laughs> Mario Kart. Um, yes. That's that's always a fun, quick game too. Like I can squeeze that in even when I'm working. Um, there's this great game out for the the Switch called Overcooked. 
What is that? Um, it's basically a cooking game, which sounds not so fun, right? Um, it sounds weird. <laughs> <laughs> I know. But basically, uh, it's a multiplayer cooking game. So there, you can have up to four players, and you have these challenges where you have to make like a hamburger or something, I don't know, something bizarre. And uh, But the platform changes so you might be on moving vehicles trying to cook and you're trying not to bump into each other and the kitchen catches on fire it's basically an anxiety inducing game but it's a lot of fun (laughs) i know when i frame it that way it's right up your alley (laughs) and it also sounds like the way you were describing uh that it describes my kitchen every night right exactly exactly. things about to uh, catch on on fire fire, yeah (laughs) that's how you know you're cooking right (laughs) When you were talking about the output that you have to put out as far as being a a freelance writer, is it more than uh, what, quote, a standard writer would have to? What do you, what would you say you're, when you say you're a workaholic and you got to keep pumping out work, what is your usual uh, routine or? Well, um, about, I want to say about two years ago, I did do staff writing and basically that was a nine to four kind of job. I would log in and I would get assignments for, it was news or celebrity, like not really news news, but we would cover whatever the trends were were of the day. So it would basically be, I'd log on at nine o'clock in the morning. I'd get something assigned to me. I'd have an hour to two hours to pump it out. So maybe I'd turn around two, three articles in a day, but then at four o'clock I was logging out. Whereas now as a freelance writer, I'm constantly pitching new content or new ideas. I'm writing pieces and then sending them out because sometimes you don't have the piece picked up until you write it. So a lot of times it's writing, 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 and just sending it out to outlets. Um, So it's not only just the writing aspect, but it is pitching articles. It is following up on articles. It's edits for articles. Um, It really depends on the outlet and where I'm sending stuff to, but it's a constant process. And especially to keep the freelance income consistent, which is something I try really hard to do. So I try really hard to keep a consistent income. Do you find it tough? Uh, you threw a keyword out there of, of income. Do you find it tough as far as trying to toe the line between your proper advocacy as well as uh, also keeping it within, I guess, uh, you're answering to someone who needs these requirements for this specific article. So are you uh, uh, finding a balance between full expression of your ideas along with structuring it in a way that stays within bounds of the certain guidelines? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I find that I'm very fortunate and I work with some really great outlets. Um, and the, the places that I write for, they tend to be very open to what I have to say, not only in my own writing, um, but if I say, you know, maybe we shouldn't word something this way, or if an article comes out and it, it edits, edits happen a lot of times after I send in a piece, um, the editors will go in and make some tweaks and that's fine. But if something comes out that really seems against better best practices as i say i usually will go back to the editor and say can we change that there's a reason and i'll explain and generally that the outlets i write for uh, the editors i work with are very receptive and do you react to kind of a temperature of what is going on in the current world when you uh mention that internet time five minutes is like a lifetime uh, on the internet have there been cases where uh, it just felt like, oh my God, it's, it was this one day and now this new issue is the next day. And then it, uh, a constant, uh, basically news cycle that just keeps hitting you and you're just 
oh, geez, just slow down for one second. It is. And actually, that's the reason I stepped away from the news writing stuff. Okay. Because I, I, I decided that was... I, I, I still write news for some sites, but I write it as I see fit. Like, mm. my editor will come to me and say, oh, we have this, this story. Would you like to write about it? Whereas the constant production, that nine to four kind of thing... Um, it was also a lot during the 2016 election cycle. Yeah. And so there was a lot of uh, political coverage. Mm-hmm. And that was, to be very fair, it was very draining. <laughs> very draining um, and soul-sucking, <laughs> to say the least. So uh, I, I definitely have kind of tapered where I write and what I write just to, because it is constant. Mm. It, it is such a constant thing. It just doesn't thing. stop. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't. And had and so you just decided to throttle that back, right? yeah. Because it was yeah, and that <laughs> and that was I mean that was a consistent income that was mm-hmm. not freelance income. But I decided I would rather go back into the freelance bullpit and and play that game as opposed to finding myself sucked dry at the end of the day. Is this the medium that you find that you are uh, fully expressing yourself? When it, is it? writing or have you expressed interest in any other types of mediums out there such as youtube or twitch or well i don't know if it's going to be live streaming video games or anything but uh any other mediums out there or is this the one and this is the one that you're going to keep going with writing is definitely my predominant um medium i have been doing a lot of public speaking and Mm. that is something i really enjoy um i've done speaking not only at some conferences but i've also been doing some speaking at colleges and universities and that's another I really enjoy that because it gives me a different engagement. Um, but writing's definitely my bread and butter. And so when you do do your public speaking events, as opposed to uh, writing an article where it's out there for a lot of people to consume, and you speak publicly and you answer questions afterwards, right? Yes. So yes. do you feel that uh, you're able to then uh, reach people individually on a more deeper level since you are talking to them face-to-face? Yeah, absolutely. I mean... When I do the public speaking events, of course, it's for a smaller audience. You know, an article can reach thousands, millions of people, depending on the platform, whereas a public speaking event might be anywhere from 50 to 100 people that I'm actually addressing. Um, but then afterwards, not only the Q&A, the, usually I always do a Q&A in general, but then afterwards I do get to talk to individual people that will come up to me and have specific questions, whether it be for themselves or a loved one. And that personal reaction, I get some of that with writing. Sometimes I'll get private messages, um, but it's it's few and far between. Whereas I can have a, an intimate relationship yeah. with the people at the public speaking events, and and that is very fulfilling to to see. It's also very fulfilling to see that immediate reaction. Is this a move towards uh, what you are? pushing when we were talking about in the beginning of the podcast, you were looking to do a nonprofit. Right. Uh, Why did you go into that? Yeah. So I'm actually in the process of launching a nonprofit. It's called Greater Than Illness, and it's dedicated to empowering teens and young adults struggling with mental illness. And basically, uh, it's going to be empowering them through writing and storytelling, which obviously is something I'm very passionate. Yes. Passionate about, but also through physical activity. Um, so it's kind of incorporating there. I know when I was a teenager, writing was, as I said, very cathartic. It still is. Um, and I wrote bad 
at the time, very bad angsty poetry. Um, but I had, I had a mentor uh, teacher who had read some of my stuff. She was my English teacher and she'd read some of my stuff and she encouraged me to keep writing and we developed a relationship and she kind of mentored me not only in writing, but through some of these struggles. And I feel like there's a great chance to reach out to kids in a very personal level. So I, Greater Than Illness is going to be working and doing these mini workshops with schools, maybe six to eight week programs where I can help a child realize that they're not just a diagnosis. The end game of whatever they're writing is to realize that, yes, they might have an illness, but they are more than that, um, which is hence the name Greater Than Illness. And really that's, and, and the physical activity is another aspect, as I was mentioning, um, we're looking to do a organized run mm. and it would be a three mile, like a 5k, uh, length run. And it would be not an ultra. No, yeah. no, okay. not a, no, We've not got a, what is it? The, the goofy challenge. <laughs> Dopey. Dopey. The, <laughs> the goofy challenge is another one oh, though. Oh, it is. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, with the, the. Which run was it's, it? It would be called the three for me run mm -hmm. because so many of these runs are based on running for a charity, which is great. But the, the idea of calling it the three for me run is that you're running for yourself and to better yourself. And how could someone gain more information about this uh, nonprofit? They can go to uh, greater than illness.com. Um, and they can also email me, uh, which would be there. There's a contact form on there that they can reach out to me. When you were talking about, uh, I, I know we, we both kind of like made faces of like, just, eh, what are you going to do when you were talking about uh, angsty uh, poetry <laughs> back back in your, in your teen years? It made me think about uh, Linkin Park again, yes. because that was the type of, um, it was the audience that Linkin Park reached out to yes. uh, at, at that point. I remember going to a, a concert. It was, I'm a little older, so by the time I saw them as they were hitting their peak, I was already in college, right. but I could see... Uh, it was Lincoln Park. It was Disturbed. They were on the same bill. I saw that were, concert, the Lincoln Park Disturbed concert. Uh, uh, and Fuel at the end of the 90s. Was Fuel it, it on was, that one? It was, 90, it was a 92.3 concert, right? A Hammerstein ballroom? Yeah. Anyway. Might have oh, been. Yeah. Might have been. Um, in any case, it was insane. It was awesome. And it was, and you could feel it in the crowd. I felt it because I was pushing to the front row and then everyone's trying to, you know, get on and then uh, <laughs> you literally on my back, felt it. you literally felt it because I felt like my ribs were about to get crushed. I also had to throw out my shirt afterwards because it was, I'm like, I sniffed it. I'm like, there's no way this is going to get clean. Absolutely not. <laughs> but they resonated right. with the crowd and they resonated with the specific message of that as people like to do these days, oh, it's, you know, why are you being so angsty? Why are you being so, uh, what is it, teen angst? Why are you so angry or emo, right. et cetera, et cetera. But that was the music at the time that could, that spoke. It spoke, to. yeah, it spoke. And then, and this is just my personal take on it. It just could be because I'm really old. But I don't, I don't know if, one, there's something out there like Linkin Park that is acceptable for, for kids to listen to. And to get that aggression out or whatever it is, that emotion that's built up inside them, that quote, angst. And two, just the kind of um, uh, just general temperature of like, oh, why, why are kids being so emo or, or teen angsty? It's kind of like it's, it's, it's bad to do that. Right. So. Right. And yeah, I don't know that there is anything. Uh, I mean, but I'm also... <laughs> Uh, of the mindset that music was better back in the day. So, I mean, <laughs> that might not be fair, but I'm not sure that there really is an, anything out there. And, and it's important for 
teenagers to express that in whatever fashion it is. And yes, I joke it was angsty poetry, but it got me through. And and same thing with the music, like yes. the words of Linkin Park, like hearing that in Disturbed and... Oh, I'm going to sound terrible saying this, but Papa Roach. Do you remember Papa Roach? Yes, I remember. <laughs> that was another one. Like, yep. you, there were your, your ballads that you just blasted and, <laughs> you, it, it, you know, and uh, so, yeah, it's important for teens to feel like they have a safe space to express that because the teenage years are tough, whether you're struggling with a mental illness or not, the teenage years are tough. Um, so it, it's important for teens to really have an outlet to to express that safely and, and feel let me heard. If, let me too. see if I can relay this to, to, to Warren back in high school, your dad, your, your daddy actually had longer hair. I had like the mushroom cut. My <laughs> hair was like down to here. And, uh, I grew it out specifically cause I wanted to headbang to Metallica. There you That's go. That's what it was. And I was wearing Metallica shirts. I was like, every other band sucks. Metallica's <laughs> the best. They got the best solos. Then there was a lot of like pop punk going on at the time. Uh-huh. I was like, your stuff sucks. It doesn't have solos. You don't play fast enough metal. So, but at the same time, it was my, that was, I was listening to everything. And then I heard that and I heard Kirk Hammett hit a, hit a solo. I heard the double helicopter bass drum pedal. I'm like, this is my, this is. For whatever reason, this resonates with me. This speaks to me. Yeah. And and I'm I'm wondering if that happened to you too, with any other type of music. Either it it hit you like immediately, or it it, it grew on you. Oh man! Oh, um, this is a blast from the past. <laughs> I know, right? Um, I mean, definitely. If I'm talking about music resonating with me in my teen years, I would say Linkin Park's definitely like up on the top of my list. Um, and yeah, Papa Roach <laughs> and Disturbed, and uh, but it connected with you. Yes, it did. And what do you think that you can get? And as Evanescence deep as you need to. in in oh, college, yes, yes. Evanescence mm-hmm. was a big one that resonated with me, no doubt. Uh-huh. Um, you know, there was there was a few that just like spoke to me. What do you think it was? Um, with Lincoln Park, I definitely think it was the lyrics, the the accessibility that those lyrics felt like they spoke to me. They were, they they. They told a story that I got, and it was definitely lyrics with them. Um, and I think the same same holds true with Evanescence. I mean, there was some, there was also a soulfulness in her voice that just that in, there was feeling in her vo- voice and emotion aside, you know, words aside. Um, but yeah, I think it's the story that the the songs tell is what spoke to me. Was this something then you got together with other uh, of your friends and listened to together as well too, or or you just wanted to? Go no, to I a mean I listened. And... I listened to it at concerts and with my friends, but I think predominantly it was mm. that that was the music I listened to at home alone, like you know, blasting and, and when I, you know before yeah. my my mom came home and would tell me to turn it down. Like <laughs> that was the music that just I. I had it in my disc man, you know, oh, which, yep. you know, Another ba- blasting <laughs> right. Yep. yep. My no skip disc man. I totally <laughs> skipped, but, uh, but yeah, that I walked around with my headphones on all the time. What about the style of dress? I, so I, I had a lot of styles in high school, but mm. I definitely went through my, uh, my hot topic phase mm-hmm. where, you know, I wore the, the, Dark clothes. I yep. have black lipstick. <laughs> yep. I'm only getting into this because Warren's going to see this as, as he grows up. You still see it now. You see everyone with different, every single types of uh, uh, style. And some of them relate to 
this specific story of us, uh, yeah. there was a ragtag crew of they listened to something that was non-pop, whether it be hip hop, whether it be punk, whether it be uh, emo, thrash, metal, and they had their affinity to it. Yeah, they felt like they belong that they belonged to a group, and this and and they needed their teams. They needed people with them together because as you said the teenage years are are very confusing oh very yes. and they can be very traumatizing oh yeah so and and every and everyone has the same troubling teenage story regardless of what your experience was almost everyone i know doesn't want to go back to high school or doesn't want to go back to middle school because they had some mm. they almost everyone i know has a story that's of, of difficulty like it's not a unique experience everyone has those developmental struggles if you could go back to high school, are we talking back to the future style where like you have the knowledge and you can, and well, you that can... would be cool. That might be pretty cool. Uh, yeah, it was, it was a crazy time growing up and trying to find acceptance. And the reason why I, I, I wanted to take that discussion in, in that direction was due to the fact that it, that's where kids get sad like how the percentage of being happy in high school it's probably under right. <laughs> like a, a very you, you could probably count those you can count them mm-hmm. as opposed to just jesus christ all the stress that you had to go through right every single day being told that oh just wait till you're out of high school or you right. know what i mean so the stress of trying to decide your future in high school like there's so much, with- the stress of trying to decide your future in high school, like going to college, you know, taking all those tests and there's a lot of stress on high Is school. Is that what kids. was pushed on you? Um, I definitely, I mean, that was going to college and, and getting scholarships and all of that, you know, that was definitely a big part of growing up for me. Exactly. With me as well too. And yeah. it was, it was, uh, oh, to have to do this, have to do this, because you don't want to end up like this person, right? But Jesus Christ, Dad, come on. <laughs> yeah. And it was it was a lot of pressure because it was not only that, it was if you messed up, or they made it seem like if you messed up, that was it. That was the, yes. end, that, that was the end of the world. So there was even more stress there. And right. You're try, and you were trying to fit in. For you, you were trying to fit in with, with friends, people that you liked. Yeah. Likewise, here too. And, and... Those four years felt like a fucking lifetime. They did. They did. Did you have any other, uh, any particular periods in, 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 in that time where it sticks out to you or? Eh. Middle school also oh. was str- strikingly difficult. Um, I, so I moved, um, I moved around a lot as a kid, um, oh. but we moved to Carteret, New Jersey when I was in seventh grade. And so... I'm already like that weird, awkward 12-year-old kid trying to figure out everything, you know, about my body, life, going to high school, all of that. And we moved to a new town. And, and so that, that threw a wrench for me. And then middle school, I, I, I will say I found middle school girls particularly crueler than high school. <laughs> Cooler or cooler? Cooler. Oh, cooler. Yeah. I, mm. I think, the, and I don't know if it's a difference between boys and girls, but I find that I found... It, and maybe it was just where I was at the time, but I found that middle school was a tougher set of years than even high school was. I can um, see that. I, I mean, there was I, there was other personal things. My my father passed away when I was in okay. middle school, so there was definitely other layers to that for me. Uh, but I think uh, middle school, man, I I don't know. I wouldn't go back to middle school. I'd go, if I had to go back to middle school or high school, it would be high school for sure. What do you and think that's it, not a. 
good set of choices. <laughs> what do you think it was as far as the, the, the extra cruel? Do you think they're extra crueler now? I'm only asking you because eventually I have to start going through this and, yeah. and, 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 and talking to Warren about this. I'm not sure if you've been in, in contact with more moms or other parents and as they tell you. I think uh, as you're going kids are developing younger now. And yeah. I think I think there, some of it might be access to everything with social media, um, mm. access to, you know, we, we're of a generation that grew up before the internet. Yeah. And now they have everything available to them at all times. A Google search. Yeah, it's it's a few a few keywords away, and uh, I think I think kids are developing earlier now, so I think they're learning more now. Um, and I think I, I definitely think that these these clicks. I mean, I already, my daughter is in preschool, and there's already clicks in preschool, which is so oh, yeah. absurd to me. There's yep. there's infighting between like friends, like. The frenemy. Um, there. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Yes. There. Um, there's one girl who uh, will, <laughs> in particularly, um, she she when she gets upset with Amelia or with her other friends, she'll be mm-hmm. like, "Well, you're not coming to my birthday party." Oh. And man. like, like oh. they're supposedly friends, but this and this wow. is happening. And Amelia told me about it, and she she's like, "I told her she can't come to my birthday party," and we had to have a whole discussion of, "Well, that's not how you react." And we, we had this whole long conversation about how if, you know, if somebody says something not nice to you, it doesn't mm-hmm. mean that you have to say something not nice back. And in the end, Amelia, uh, I found out from another mom because she overheard uh, that they were doing this again. She's like, well, you're not coming to my birthday party. And Amelia goes, well, you're coming to mine. And it was like one of those proud parent moments. I was like, Aww. oh, she listened. It was just <laughs> like, but yeah, it's so, the dynamic is so bizarre to me that Things like, of course, that's a very small scale example, yeah, yeah. but that stuff like this is happening at four and five years old. I don't know. I was hearing that from uh, uh, my friend growing up up in high school where she, uh, how did it turn out? I ended up talking to her, to her mom this years, years and years later when, when she was saying, yeah, at the kindergarten table, they told her, her daughter, that she couldn't uh, sit at the table because they all weren't wearing this particular type of sneaker. Wow. You know? So this has been ongoing for quite a while, but the, the, the frenemy thing, that's, that's getting interesting as well, where the infighting, yeah. as, as, as you had mentioned. And also with Warren, I'm trying to see if there's anything. No, he's still, Warren, you're still being lazy with your walking, buddy. You know, you'll take <laughs> a two steps and you just fall to your butt. Everyone else is running circles around you, literally. So I don't know. You got to pick that up. Yeah. <laughs> What do you think? If you had to start uh, passing some messages down to Warren from what you've been seeing so far or what you've been exposed to, what do you, what would you say to him? I mean, I think the biggest thing is life is going to throw you a lot of obstacles. No matter, no matter what your circumstances are, life is going to throw you a lot of obstacles. And the best thing you can do is be true to yourself, listen to yourself, um, not be afraid of emotions because Ooh. emotions happen. And they're normal, no matter what, no matter what you're feeling, uh, definitely it's okay. And to be, to try and learn how to express those emotions at a young age is so important, like we were talking about earlier. And I just think that if, if, you know, if he can appreciate his emotions now, even if they're 
you know, the frustrating ones, you know, frustration, anger. I'm sure he feels. Oh, he's expressing them now. <laughs> yes. It's getting close. It's getting, he's getting close to two. So yeah, yeah. it used to just be like, no, or, or whatever that noise that means no. But now it's like that and whack, you know, like mm-hmm. physically batting things away or mm-hmm. so. Yeah. It's getting there. Yeah. And, and I mean, they're, they're difficult emotions, but to oh. sit with an emotion and to learn how to work through it, I think that's a skill that can help him down the road. For, I, I think it could help anybody. I mean, if you can learn about your emotions young enough and learn how to cope with them, like, like Amelia, she gets very frustrated and, and, and she has a very short fuse. And, mm. and I tell her, you know, it's okay to be angry, but you can't, act out on your anger. You can't hit somebody or, you know, not that she hits people, but you can't act out on that anger. And we try doing like breathing exercises or we try talking through things. And, and that's a skill that you learn early enough that can carry you through life. Is it also something that, uh, just, is there a point where it's, uh, easier to absorb the, the lesson I remember, and I'm going to tra- draw a really far metaphor from this. When uh, I would see people try jujitsu for the first time as adults, they go, oh, I wish I could have done this like years ago. I wish I could have done this when I was uh, a kid. And then I watch like kids classes and I see like how some of the kids like learn uh, the moves and then, you know, they, half of them don't understand what, like why they're there. The other half are like, okay, I, I think I know what I'm doing. The other half or what have you. And so it's kind of like, no. It's actually good that you're you're doing uh, jujitsu now as as an adult because you can f- you fully appreciate and you can fully absorb it. Yeah. Right? So I'm not sure if there's maybe there's a balance between the two because the 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 handling of your emotions, especially when you're younger, is in, in those early years. You need that to be properly socialized because, mm-hmm. as you said, one just can't go around hitting people when. No, I mean it's it's really frowned upon, but but no, I mean to 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 get a good feeling and a regu- to regulate them, you mm-hmm. know, to find a good balance of, but also knowing that there's no shame in having any emotion, mm. you know, whatever you're feeling, there's no there's no shame in feeling that it's normal, it happens. I, I get frustrated, but you know, feeling bad about getting frustrated or acting out on those frustrations, it's just not going to be cathartic for anyone. And it sounds like you're doing a wonderful job with Amelia because oh, she you. was very happy and cheery and playing <laughs> with all of Warren's toys prior to all of this. Is there anything else you wanted to uh, uh, mention? Is there anything else as far as your nonprofit? Anything else you needed to plug? No, I don't think so. I think I think that's uh, that's pretty much everything for me. <laughs> I want to thank finally that we have <laughs> we have you here and for sharing all of that. We really want to thank you for that. I hope you have you on again another time whenever uh the ever perpetual news cycle maybe something else will happen yeah. and then we need to have you back on for uh commentary i would love it. to thank you so much kim oh thank you there we go everybody a very informative podcast concerning mental health again be sure to check out greater than for more information and look him up for all her publications on a variety of sites and platforms as always you can get in touch with us at dear Warren podcast at gmail instagram and on facebook and we thank you for listening and all the support we love you all and we will see you next time with the wonderful jessica for the midweek podcast Thank you.